if the next crisis comes or a compounding crisis happens, what are some of the things, the top 10 or top 20 things they could do uh, to get the ball rolling? So our main recommendation is tying all these threads together and coming up with a crisis playbook. On March 11, 2020, the World Health Organization declared the COVID-19 outbreak a global pandemic. By then, the virus had spread to 114 countries and taken over 4,000 lives. Today, the death toll from COVID-19 exceeds 6.5 million, and there have been over 600 million confirmed cases worldwide. The pandemic has also had major economic and social impacts, contributing to a reversal of the decline in global extreme poverty rates for the first time in decades. The World Bank Group delivered a response of unprecedented scale and speed, aiming to address both the immediate health crises and the economic and social consequences of the pandemic. The Independent Evaluation Group, IEG, recently published two evaluations of the World Bank Group's pandemic response. Focused on the initial 15 months of the response, one report looks at efforts to address health and social impacts and the other at efforts to address the economic consequences. In today's episode, I will be speaking with the lead authors of these two reports to explore the lessons from both evaluations that might help the World Bank Group and the international community respond to a similar global pandemic. With me today are Jenny Gold and Raghavan Narayanan. Jenny is a senior evaluation officer. She was previously a health specialist at the World Bank and has extensive experience in the health sector. She co-led IEG's evaluation of the World Bank's health and social response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you. Raghavan is the senior evaluation officer and IEG's coordinator for the Mobilizing Finance for Development theme. He specializes in thematic evaluations and strategic initiatives and led IEG's evaluation of the World Bank Group's economic response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome, Raghavan. Thank you, Brenda. So it sounds like from both of you that the the COVID response was a pretty strong one. It was it was moved fast. It introduced some innovations. Does your evaluation tell us anything more about what enabled the bank group to deliver this strong response? Jenny, we'll start with you. One of the important factors was simply just having um, crisis instruments ready to go in your portfolio. If a country had multiple crisis instruments, they had a lot of flexibility to respond and move resources across sectors to think quickly uh, in the response. So an example is Mozambique. The um, reorientation of the portfolio at the country level was really important to uh, think comprehensively about the response. So we're not talking just health here, but integrating actions from water, agriculture, transport, local governance as well, and bringing these together based on the past experience of the portfolio so that they could respond quickly. So you see uh, this done in both Uganda and Senegal, for example. Having um, existing previous well-developed human capital support was, again, critical as well. So where a country had years already invested in developing social protection, they could quickly expand that social protection support. 
or similarly education, uh, gender support, or um, our health services. So previous support uh, to develop preparedness really did pay off in countries. So you see this also in countries that were supported by regional projects, especially. And I, I want to emphasize here the One Health platforms in these countries mm-hmm. that were really important in, in terms of engaging political dialogue um, across countries for ownership of the response, but also technical actions and supporting their learning and uh, their adjustment of the response, particularly the, the health actions. Thank you. So, Raghavan, I want to sort of let me first ask you, what do you think allowed the bank, IFC and MEGA to be so agile in this circumstance? Yeah. Uh, The way we uh, framed the discussion about why they were agile was looking at uh, or testing whether the bank group had learned lessons from the past crises. Mm -hmm. And we framed that uh, predominantly as uh, inter-crisis learning. Uh, a lot of the lessons which IEG had highlighted in our previous evaluations back in 2009 had said there had to be some sort of uh, internal governance structural changes to facilitate faster commitments, faster disbursement. Uh, a lot of the agility came from the fast track financing facilities that needed to be set up. Mm-hmm. So all those lessons from 2008 were very well captured this time around, and we gave the bank group credit for it. So they formed special response committees, special corporate portfolio teams, emergency operations teams uh, across all three institutions, centrally coordinating activities for the financial sector. So all of those uh, actions that they had taken uh, allowed them to be very agile and responsive in 2020. Can you tell us sort of institution by institution what allowed each of them to have a strong response? Uh, Sure. The way we uh, analyzed the World Bank's economic response by first looking at the macroeconomic budget support instruments uh, and then at the financial sector um, specific responses. So we kind of categorized it at two levels. And one of the success factors on the macroeconomic budget support was clearly the partnership with the IMF. Uh, Unlike the previous crises, the World Bank uh, had a lot more deliberate uh, set of actions to work with IMF uh, and and prepare a uh, somewhat joint uh, response in countries like Ecuador and Nigeria. We also tested uh, the financial sector response in those countries as a second level of response. Uh, The challenge at the sector level uh, response for the bank was a sort of an exogenous factor in the sense that even though the support and the engagement is at the federal level, a lot of the country's own um, internal structures does not allow for easy disbursements down to the state level or the provincial level. So the success factor for the IFC was creating this fast-track COVID response facility that had not happened before, but this was created primarily as a lesson from the 2008 crisis. Uh, so that's part of the inter-crisis response. And within that, they had created several innovative envelopes focused on different sectors supporting firms. So there was a financial sector envelope, there was a real sector envelope. So what worked was the uh, existing roster of clients that they had in the financial sector. They all came knocking at the door. So the financial sector envelope was able to disperse very fast. Uh, But then the real sector envelope had challenges. And a lot of that has to do with the uh, tremendous amount of compliance requirements that are needed from a safeguards perspective, from complying with environmental and social standards perspective. So the real sector firms did not benefit as much as the financial Mm -hmm. sector firms. 
So we have this sort of um, mixed bag of, of how uh, the response could have been channeled better for the contact intensive sectors as well. Uh, there's no clear solution how we would do that uh, without uh, getting some waivers on internal compliance. And that is beyond the ambit of the uh, task team leads or the investment offices. This requires a conversation at the board level. When a crisis comes, what should be the playbook for uh, a real sector? That is not very clear. So we've made a recommendation specifically in the report, drawing from the success and failures during this crisis response as how should the bank group think about crisis response or pandemic response that disproportionately affects the real sector so Mm -hmm. much more than the financial sector. So the financial sector is a great way to channel funds to the real sector, but it's not the same as supporting the real sector directly. So that's on the uh, sort of the IFC response. So although the the fast track facility was very innovative, uh, the corporate portfolio response was very, uh, very strong. The um, uh, support to the sectors that needed it the most was a little imbalanced in our view. Mm -hmm. Uh, On the lessons learning, um, we felt that um, by 2021, again, uh, it was pretty clear that countries that relied heavily on uh, tourism or manufacturing, uh, those are the kind of sectors that were completely decimated and and they needed a lot more support in 2021, which is where the shifting in strategy did not happen. Specific to MEGA, a lot of the response was, was heavily financial sector centric. Uh, and uh, our view is uh, the response was was fine. It was based on fully on client demand. But we also felt there are opportunities for MEGA to think on the structured finance solutions where it will need to work with IFC. It will need to work with EBRD or other lenders to come up with uh, innovative guarantee programs that can help the firms and the workers get back to their uh, pre-COVID levels of activities. Okay, well, Jenny, let's move to talking about the impact of the response. What have the impacts from the response been? We cannot say anything about the outcomes yet at this early stage, but we see many promising uh, evidence of of potential uh, results going forward. So the case studies provide uh, evidence of early outputs um, that suggest satisfactory implementation and and positive outcomes going forward uh, that we're on the right path. So, for example, we see that the scale of the response uh, of COVID testing, remote learning, and social protection across countries likely helped countries save lives. About 80% of the countries expanded access to, to emergency health services. And about 70% expanded social protection. So this includes support to women-headed households and and informal workers, for example. Um, The challenge was that we only saw that about 40% of countries had a mix of interventions, including support to monitoring, expanding health services, protecting human capital and gender. And what we found in the evaluation is having this mix of support to support a more comprehensive response was really important to um, put them on a path towards outcomes. Um, Another key uh, recommendation of the report is to apply a stronger gender lens to crisis response. So uh, a lot of countries were not prepared to take actions to um, address gender in health services, such as through sexual and reproductive health services and and uh, psychosocial care um, or in education, for example, to support uh, prevention of of girls dropping out of school. Mm -hmm. Okay. And do they have the data to to determine the differences in gender outcomes? 
a key challenge of the response was the absence of, of data. There was a need for more frequent monitoring of the response, and project indicators are every six months. So what was really needed in the response was more of a dashboard approach at the country level mm -hmm. where you could integrate response from different sectors. Thank you. So, Raghavan, let's hear about some of the impact from the response to support livelihood. Yeah, we share very similar characteristics with uh, what Jenny outlined in terms of uh, data issues. Uh, we had observed two types or two levels of data issues. One is internal data. Uh, a lot of the projects were tagged as COVID economic response, but mm -hmm. they may not have been. Mm -hmm. So we had a challenge of these false positives. Can you give us an example, <laughs> uh, if you may, of, of something that's tagged for economic response, but really was a false positive? Yeah. Uh, Without mentioning the country, I could say there were uh, some projects that uh, supported, for example, uh, uh, climate change initiatives uh, uh, by uh, indirectly supporting a bank, which would then on lend uh, to uh, some climate mitigation activities. While it's a very noble uh, project, uh, very good objectives, we just didn't feel it's part of uh, a pandemic response. In some I see. Sense. Thank you. Uh, so it could have uh, long-term goals, very nice objectives, but it just doesn't meet the smell test just by studying the objectives. Uh, but then we also had a lot of challenges at the country level when we did our case studies. Uh, we observed... Um, Many of our client governments were incentivized to set up extra budgetary funds outside of the country's balance sheet to uh, attract uh, pandemic response money coming in from various donors, uh, foundations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What that does is it conflates the uh, overall MDB support with the budget support from the IMF and the World Bank with all these extra budgetary allocation of capital. Uh, it's very hard to disaggregate and disentangle who was supporting what at what point in time within those 15 months. So the external data also has, a, a, has some sort of a challenge for us to unpack. But then from an outcomes perspective, as Jenny had said, uh, it's too early to judge. Uh, on the uh, longer term issues, I think it's best to wait for uh, an exposed <laughs> evaluation. Uh, what we did say was, from our observations in these cases, a lot of the firms that benefited uh, from the early response, the agile response, it uh, ensured that uh, they don't close their business or, or they don't send their jobs home. Mm -hmm. uh, but after two years, they're still uh, stuck in that low starting point. Um, those firms and jobs are still stuck at a very low starting point. So uh, one of our suggestions to the bank group was uh, it might not be enough to just give them more loans because more loans create more debt, right. both at the country level and at the firm level. So we suggested coming up with some sort of structured finance solutions uh, that combines a little bit of loans, but also a lot of these firms need equity to get back on the growth path. So we had a analytical framework where we tested, was there intra-crisis learning and then was there inter-crisis learning? So one of the, uh, you know, oversimplified example is we said, now that you've learned from the nine months of response, have you adapted for 2021 when some countries were coming out of the pandemic? Mm -hmm. So we tested the intra-crisis learning, like while the crisis is going on, to what extent you're able to learn for and adapt, mm -hmm. adapt for it. But then what we observed was the bank group response didn't really adapt in 2021 because the needs had changed and somehow 
it was business as usual uh, because they had achieved early success. So they continued on the same path, whereas the programs needed to be repurposed, reprogrammed a little bit differently in 2021. Okay. And more contact intensive sectors needed to be supported because by mm-hmm. design, the pandemic affects the real sector more than the financial sector. So we felt that uh, we felt the bank group did an excellent job, very agile response in 2020, but the adaptive management and the intra-crisis learning could have been better in 2021. So let's look to the future and think about um, how well the bank group is prepared for future crises and or what other things that they might consider so that they can be well prepared. Jenny, can you start us? Yes, uh, sure, Brenda. So I want to emphasize um, two of our two of the recommendations that we came up with that I haven't mentioned yet. So one is about regional uh, cooperation and strengthening uh, support to regional um, platforms in countries and, and One Health platforms, and and that these platforms also should reach community level so that the networks are connected. Uh, you see this in in some countries like Senegal, for example. Uh, but this was not widespread across countries. So not this re- many countries didn't have this type of regional support. And we did see that it was quite important, especially in countries with weaker systems, to strengthen institutional capacities, but also to help them respond rapidly. And having more attention to this type of regional support and how it can complement and synergize support to countries will be really critical going forward for preparation um, of of crisis, but also to help strengthen systems. The other recommendation I want to point out in terms of the bank's readiness is relating to strengthening the bank's internal crisis preparedness, because it was countries that were not prepared, but also the bank internally was not that prepared. So the bank can learn a lot about the use of the multi-phase programmatic approach in health and how it was processed quickly uh, in the response and some of the flexibilities that were given to new projects. The MPA or the multi-phase programmatic approach, it, it was a way to develop an overarching framework to roll out many projects across countries. So this was an innovative way to um, scale up many projects to address the health response at once. But important also in the bank's response is to explore the use of crisis instruments more so and how they can be uh, more innovatively applied to support early response in a crisis. So for example, it was difficult to trigger a crisis instrument before a country announced its crisis. And if you didn't have instruments uh, across multiple sectors, then it was difficult to activate these quickly, or you didn't have the flexibility to move around resources. Another aspect that the bank can strengthen is particularly its partnerships for emergency health response. There were not strong partnerships set up before COVID to support countries in in terms of the health implementation of the response. Where there were regional projects, there were partnerships set up, but these were not global or they were not supporting countries outside of those regional projects. Another aspect um, is the monitoring of actions. I, I, I mentioned this earlier, but having a, a better ability in the bank to monitor actions across global practices, across sectors, and not just at the project level. What country managers needed was to have some key uh, monitoring information from different aspects of the response, which was not at a project level. It was integrated across different projects. So, Jenny, I do want to ask, how were vaccines part of the World Bank response? 
The World Bank's multi-phase programmatic approach in, in health supported vaccines. There was a second phase of this project, which was designed to help countries uh, buy vaccines for their response so that these could be rolled out for populations. A key challenge of supporting vaccines, though, was there was not a strong early investment in some of the communication aspects and behavioral changes of the response. Moreover, there was not an instrument available to support partnership. Uh, in terms of the early partnerships to secure access to vaccines, there were a lot. There was a lot of discussion and, and well-intended efforts to engage with with partners early on globally to secure uh, vaccines. Though this was very challenging without an instrument that they could use to commit resources for this, and, and regionally also there were some, was some discussion. But as noted, this could have regional discussions could have been potentially started earlier on vaccines as well. Vaccine actions with with partners, though, a key recommendation of the report relating to the strengthening the bank's um, support to future pandemics is to be more prepared to work with partners and have instruments that they can work with global partners as well to support advanced market commitments on vaccines, for example. Well, the bank is not a vaccine expert. How can we better engage with partners early on and have an instrument to do this? Thank you, Jenny. And Raghavan. Uh, there are a couple of threads that I want to re-emphasize and then bring it together for the recommendation we made. So one is, in a typical evaluation, we would study the intended consequences of, of the response actions. Uh, but towards the end of the evaluation, we realize that there are also unintended consequences of responding to a global pandemic like this. Uh, in this case, it was all about sovereign debt, debt, debt. And what that means is the multilaterals were providing uh, debt, uh, the private creditors were providing debt, so the countries, the client countries were taking on enormous amount of debt. Uh, and, and that is uh, leading to a new debt bubble in addition to all the debt that had been carried over from the financial crisis. Now, this evaluation is not proposing any solution for the debt crisis that might or might not happen. But what we said in our evaluation was that's an important threat to remember in the context of future crisis response. You don't want to unintentionally create uh, other kinds of bubbles by giving out excessive mm -hmm. amount of debt. So any relief that countries would need to, uh, to, to sustain for the long term needs to come from somewhere else. That could be mm -hmm. either renegotiating the existing uh, loan arrangements, uh, refinancing some of the uh, non-concessional debt to concessional debt, uh, or, or, or um, sol you know, protecting the insolvency situation for some sectors. But this is a, a massive effort that needs to happen from a sustainability point of view. Uh, there are some instruments that the World Bank has set up, some on its own and some jointly with the IMF, uh, but the, there's still a huge uh, gap between what these instruments can do and how to put countries on a pathway to uh, low debt but high economic impacts. Uh, and that is going to be a perpetual challenge. And there's no clean solution to that. So that is something that multilaterals, along with the G20 and others, have to collectively think about. A second thread we said was, take a look at uh, uh, some of the internal um, uh, compliance uh, uh, standards and safeguards and so on to see if they can be customized even further for specific crisis response. Because in this case, we said the contact intensive sub sector support was needed, but they couldn't get as much 
because of of the existing rules about how much we can do on procurement safeguards and so on. So tying all those three threats together and with the earlier point that I made that overall the bank group response was very agile and there were several innovative approaches they had incorporated in the agile response. We've recommended that the bank group needs to come up with a, uh, a crisis playbook, potentially jointly with the IMF, as part of future economic crisis responses. Uh, and uh, the, the way to think about uh, the crisis playbook is that there are several pockets of uh, interesting actions and innovations taken within the World Bank, but they've not been codified under one central idea or, or one central theme. So for, for future task team leads or future investment offices or future underwriters, it would be nice to have a, a, a good a guidance um, uh, from this crisis playbook. If the next crisis comes or a compounding crisis happens, what are some of the things, the top 10 or top 20 things they could do uh, to get the ball rolling? So our main recommendation is tying all these threads together and coming up with a crisis playbook. Thank you. Before we wrap up, I do want to ask, is there anything else from your evaluation that you want to make sure listeners know? I'd like to emphasize the importance of the analytical work. Only 60% of countries had analytical work, and, and a few countries had high amounts of analytical work. And this was really helpful to uh, adjust the response, to focus the response on vulnerable groups. So, for example, in Uganda, they used analytical work on behavioral change to refine their approach to behavioral change to better include some of the vulnerable groups. In India, analytical work was used to um, rapidly assess needs for um, oxygen transport and to make some adjustments. So having this analytical work that was just in time helped them to inform the response and, and adjust their actions. Thank you. Raghavan. I fully agree with uh, Jenny's points. Uh, I would add uh, the impact the uh, COVID pandemic has had on World Bank Group staff uh, and their families as they were responding in real time to this crisis. Uh, so many of the case studies uh, revealed as, as we went through the process that, uh, you know, we, we tend to judge the projects and the programs and we sort of indirectly uh, assess the, the evaluants too. But uh, listening to them and, and, and the challenges that the World Bank Group staff faced during this crisis was, was really heartbreaking for us. Uh, and uh, we don't have uh, in the evaluation framework a very clear way of assessing human resource issues, uh, at least in this evaluation, we did not have a chance. So, so one point I would make is uh, when we study crises and crisis response, um, uh, we should try to take the, the human factor into consideration of the evaluance challenges that they face. This pandemic, uh, given that a lot of the staff we spoke to were in the, in, in the, in the client countries, uh, they had COVID, their mm. family had COVID, mm. and they had to respond to the clients who had COVID. Uh, so it was almost like a triple whammy for, for a lot of them. Uh, and, and we sort of uh, framed a, a small section in the report saying that uh, staff welfare is an important area to consider as part of the crisis playbook. Um, you know, we all love to have agile, quick response, but we also have to take all the unintended consequences on, on the staff and, and, and their welfare. That's a great point. You know, it's been a challenging time for everyone. Hopefully we're coming out of it. 
Thank you, Jenny Gold. Thank you, Raghavan Narayanan. I am Brenda Barbour, host of What Have We Learned? The Evaluation Podcast. <laughs>